All of us are on a journey of becoming, a never-ending journey in pursuit of truth and deeper union with the divine. As you know, faith is a complicated thing and this journey of becoming can be both difficult and painful. Far too often, we have not been given a space where we can safely address the complications and issues that arise naturally. My name is Joshua Patterson, and I am also on this journey of becoming. I am dedicated to inviting you into my story and creating a space where questions and critical thinking are welcome. I want to take an honest look at the issues and questions so common to this shared journey. I want to genuinely seek out what it means to follow Jesus in our ever-changing world, in our unfolding and expanding universe, and in our pluralistic society. I have come to know that doubt is not the enemy of faith, but rather that both doubt and curiosity are two of faith's biggest allies. I have learned that the Christian faith is more about wisdom and love than it is about correct doctrine or belief. And I believe that we are being invited to continually seek out both wisdom and love, renewing our minds, expanding our hearts, and rethinking our faith in the process. Thank you for joining me on that journey. All right. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Rethinking Faith podcast. As always, I'm your host, Josh Patterson. And with me today is a actually a third time returning guest. Listeners, if you go back in the archives... Uh, you'll find a conversation called I See You. And then if you go a little, you know, two years later, you might find a conversation called When We Stand. And then today you should be listening to uh, an episode titled All God's Children. And the thing that ties them all together is that Terrence Lester, the man behind all three of those titles, is hanging out with me once again today. Terrence, how are we doing, my friend? Josh, it's it feels like it's been six years of right. <laughs> <laughs> literally, literally. Um, I'm excited to be here to, you know, know you and to have this conversation. This is book three. <laughs> yeah, that it's exciting. It's been uh, it's actually it's been really cool. I found a lot of joy in in uh, pulling your all of your books uh off the shelf and kind of seeing them together it just kind of reminded me um not only of like watching your own story like happen and unfold because i've been following you um now like on social media and stuff for a while but also just the the conversations we've had and how different um i am <laughs> and i'm sure you are uh than when we first talked you know all the way back in 2019 so it's it's kind of cool uh i'm excited for this conversation yeah i am i am definitely different i think uh both of us uh can attest to the fact that life is ever evolving uh with all of its uh hurdles and challenges and traumas and all of the things that can either shape us or, or uh, make us bitter so i am a different person today and i am grateful for who i'm becoming Nice. Yeah, it's um actually so it's crazy for listeners who might not know. Um you I wanted to ask you about this just cuz like it was 
I, it's been crazy to watch your your journey in this particular um, aspect. But you were in like a pretty crazy car accident, um, and that like changed like a whole bunch of stuff for you. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it was it. Uh, I don't know. I was just know I was with you along the way, um, kind of watching you as you you progress through your very physical uh, healing. I'm just I'm interested like. Did you learn anything or like, maybe this is too big of a question, but like, what did you learn about uh, maybe yourself um, during that time of like physical healing? And did it also tie into like, cause I'm sure you got acclimated with your body maybe in some new ways, but also what kind did it do anything for you? Like mentally too? Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. Um, and for those who might be listening that don't, follow me on social media uh last year last may it was actually uh what was it um may 14th 2022 um my wife and i had gone out to dinner uh to celebrate an award that our organization love young walls was receiving on behalf of its work uh with the unhoused community and it was a proud moment, man. You know, we got dressed all up. You know, I had on my, you know, my blazer and my nice shoes, as my son would say. And we arrived and we just kind of relished in the fact that we were making progress. And when I say progress, not just progress for us, but progress in educating the public here in Atlanta about, you know, how much we need to pay attention to those who are marginalized and so we left and uh, i asked my wife to drive and i fell asleep in the passenger car uh, or passenger seat and i remember the next thing i was doing was waking up on the ground uh, with emts running over to my body and i remember uh, one emt yelling out uh, flip him over to see if he's still alive and I blacked out and I came to again and I look up and I see a mangled car and my wife limping around the car to make it over to my body. I woke up again in the hospital um, with a surgeon standing over me, uh, telling me that I, my femur had uh, burst through my hip, broken my hip and uh, broke my pelvis. And I was, uh, you know, about to experience some severe nerve damage if they didn't operate quick. And so 10 hours later, I'm coming out of this operation uh, with an ortho surgeon standing over me, telling me that it might be, you know, uh, a year to a year and a half before I could walk and move around. And I remember staying in the hospital for an entire month and my life just like literally flipped upside down. And I want to make this statement because I think um, in that moment, it made me realize how much I had placed my worth in the idea of mobility because all my life I had just been moving and everything that I'd done in my, in the work that I do in my organization, you know, it, it just had all centered around worth and it opened up this world of living with a disability and starting to see, 
you know, um, how much ableism exists in the world and injustice towards those who don't have any movement. And so I had to sit with that. I had a lot of grief. Um, there was a lot of impact from the trauma. And I started learning things about myself as well as grief that um, just kind of started me on this journey of of wanting to take steps towards becoming and healing and um, being okay with the fact that life doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? And life isn't scripted all the time. And it's okay to embrace uh, the journey before me. And so I realized that trauma and grief and loss did not take my worth away, you know, and that's important because even though I could not move, it did not mean that I didn't, I didn't have worth or I had any less worth, right? Um, I realized that I didn't have to be ashamed for grieving in public, right? And sometimes like we live in a society that tries to like sweep things under a rug or give you some like prescriptive way of overcoming really quick. And I learned that grief doesn't have an expiration date and it's not linear and it's okay for a person to like lean into their own sense of emotions and the way that um, they grieve or the way that I grieve, right? I no longer had to rush my pain or take someone else's steps to navigate the grief that was unique to me. Um, and then lastly, man, um, it was just like understanding that, you know, I had to give myself grace. And when I say grace, I mean permission to be in the moment of what I was experiencing without expectations, without agendas, without any of those things and really sit with where I was in life. And I think that has produced um, deeper compassion in me. So I said a lot, but that's a little bit about that. Thank dude. That'll fucking preach. <laughs> Oh man, thank you for sharing all of that. Also, I apologize for using that language, but no, that's uh man, that thank you for sharing. Like, there's so much just even packed into that. Um man, that that's listeners, you're welcome. That's the cost of admission for this episode. Like, man, the <laughs> Yeah, Terrence, thank you for sharing. I I mean I'm I'm left left without words, but there's so much um man, I don't know, just the the like honesty and wisdom and um I mean the I was really taken back just kind of when you started talking about finding worth in like mobility. Um because I've been kind of, you know, like patting myself on the back and be like, oh, good job, Josh. You've kind of moved on from having your worth tied to uh vocation. Um, cause I had a hard time when I stopped being a pastor, I thought like, Oh, I, my entire identity was wrapped up in pastor. Now I'm a, mm. a brewer. Um, but, uh, that 
job is deeply physical and if I didn't have my mobility, I couldn't do it. <laughs> and so like I was very much like I convicted to use Christian language, caught back like I'm gonna have to spend time and contemplate <laughs> on that one, man. Yeah. We haven't we haven't even got into uh your new book. <laughs> but yeah, thank thank yeah. you for sharing. Thank yeah, you. no problem, man. I, I I just think something that you just lifted up is so important um that mobile mobility or immobility does not dictate um whether we are worth it or if we are a gift or not um and i think society has i mean even in how we design buildings you know i remember times like you know, when I was in my wheelchair with my family, like there were literally buildings that I could not go into because it wasn't ADA accommodating or, you know, times when I would be out in public and, you know, there would be other people who would make fun of me and my disability when I was using my walker uh, in front of my kids and my family or say things like that was just really disgusting. And I think I think somehow we have allowed the way that we have um, placed value just on mobility, like these really external things or the ability to do things. Um, we've allowed those to dictate worth. And, uh, you know, I'm, I've always been a, of the notion, like even in my book, I see you, we need to start with the inherent worth and value of every person. And I'm there even more right now. Um, and it's just made me even more aware and sensitive to all types of groups that have been excluded just by how we use language and design things. So thank you, man, for, uh, sharing that thought. Yeah. That, and that, like talk about proximity, right. Which is, a is a, you have a whole chapter about it in your book, but, uh, I, this, this is crazy. Cause it's like a like a, a lived out example, not, um, so within the, in the book, you know, you're talking about proximity in regards to, um, like, uh, race relations and that, like that whole, the conversation around racism. Um, but this, like, as I'm hearing you talk, it's like you very quickly and not necessarily <laughs> according to your own will, um, very quickly got put into proximity, uh, with people, um, who do experience um, these kind of like a society that's not built for the kind of body that they have. Um, that's, yeah, yeah that's, that's interesting. That's crazy. <laughs> but yeah. And it's <clears throat> like, it's so powerful, man. Even like, I know you probably have more questions, but I live in a black body too. Um, and I am constantly reminded of the distance and the lack of proximity that people who are white have to me or even the history that shapes me. And when I say white people, I'm not talking about all white people because there are some who uh, are very much co-conspirators and stand in solidarity with black and brown communities. but 
just the way that this society has been historically shaped, I am constantly reminded. Um, I'm so constantly reminded that, you know, here recently, uh, one of the things that I was talking about uh, in, in a talk, I during my whole process of healing, I, I, I couldn't walk. I was in a PhD program. I still was able to uh, complete my PhD. I defended my dissertation like a couple months after, you know, being able to walk. And uh, here recently, I was just on a, a call, right? with predominantly white persons and everybody on the call uh, had a PhD, including myself. And uh, a middle-aged white woman literally called everybody doctor on the call except me. Um, and, you know, it's, it's just like kind of those moments, not that, you know, I'm just gung-ho about a title, but in a professional setting, um, you know, I deserve the same type of acknowledgement uh, as anybody else, but I'm constantly reminded, like you were saying, like whether it's a body that's living with a disability or a black body or brown body, um, there seems to be this notion in society and culture where certain types of bodies are excluded, not acknowledged and not affirmed in ways that is healthy. Does that make sense? Yeah, ab absolutely. Um, and that, that what's, what's crazy about that story that you shared on the call is like you, within your book, you share like 50 other stories just like that. <laughs> so it's not like a one-time anomaly yeah. uh, kind of phenomenon. And also it, it kind of reminds me too. I mean, this is something you you get to um, later in, in the book when you you mentioned um, critical race theory, but the, the trying to combine the experience that you had uh, from the car accident and then having to figure out what living like with what much less mobility looked like, and also um, the fact that um, you hear a black man that when people talk about intersectionality, that's kind of like that's um like would be an example of that, right? That's these two um things coming together. And so now it's also it's I'm a black man also with this like um now like less mobility than I used to have. So that's when people talk about intersectionality, that's kind of what that's like the idea behind it, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's a perfect example. So the way I like to describe it is like in some of my roles, right? I'm a husband. I'm a father. You know, I am a leader, but I'm I'm one person. And so like there are any given times or moments like where all of those things can converge and uh have impact on this one person at the same time. And I think that is the idea of what intersectionality means. So like even being black in the hospital where I was, I didn't receive the best care. And there's research, right? That shows that 
in uh, the healthcare system, there's this idea that Black people um, don't have real pain, uh, which is, you know, ideology uh, steeped in white supremacy over, you know, decades of, I mean, even if uh, uh, you read Dr. Joy DeGruz's work, uh, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome, she talks about how Black bodies were experimented on um, in medicine early on, et cetera. But I did not have the best experience. I had nurses that wouldn't give me pain medication that would literally steal my medication and ghost me. Um, when I was in agony and pain, uh, there were times when I would have healthcare professionals come in and literally, um, curse at me. Right. Um, and not even know me. And so while I'm black, I'm also living with a disability, but I'm also being impacted by the healthcare industry that sometimes discriminates against black bodies. So like you can see how all of that converges on one person or a group of people, right? Uh, with their own unique experiences. And most people don't understand intersectionality because uh they have the option or the privilege to compartmentalize different aspects of their life. Yeah, that, hmm, that's crazy. That's a really helpful kind of image and way of, of, of framing that. And we, um, so we uh, might come back and touch on uh, critical race theory again, but I know that wasn't like the main, you know, thesis of your book. Uh, but listeners, if you are interested and don't, uh, know much about critical race theory, or maybe that's a scary phrase or something like that. Um, a little while ago, I did an episode with uh, propaganda called "I Almost Didn't Do This," um, and it was about <laughs> critical race theory. Uh, but Prop was very honest when we started, and he was like, "Dude, I almost didn't do this because I'm tired of explaining to white people what critical race theory is." And he was like, "But I like you. You guys are cool." So I decided I'd come hang out. <laughs> but the episode. Uh, yeah, listeners. So that that's there. Um, if you're interested, and um, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, you're so not my. Sorry, I'm ADHD as I'll get out, and now my brain is in a million <laughs> different places. I'm trying to trace where I want to go. Um, let's uh, hmm. Let me. All right, I'm gonna focus here. You have your new book. We've already mentioned it, but it's called All God's Children. How confronting buried history can build racial solidarity. Um, and one thing that I absolutely love about how you you started the book, the introduction um, w was about story, uh, which is something that we've kind of already like started this episode off with. Is is story, uh, but but the intro yeah. is called "Everyone Has a Story," um, and that's story here on rethinking faith is huge. Like I think story is 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 the, the game. <laughs> um, and so I just, I'm curious why, why is story so important to you? Why, why do you find story and uh, making the statement? Everybody has a story. Uh, why is that important? Yeah. I'll never forget years ago. We, when I say we, I mean, uh, my wife and a few of our friends were headed downtown. We were going to some major event and 
we were all kind of using public transportation because it was going to be crowded and we didn't want to park in like the expensive uh, parking lots, right? And so we are on this uh, train and we're kind of sitting adjacent to this guy who is like literally his head is down. He's uh, very sad and he has these little kids with him and they're just like, you know, like being kids, like, you know, uh, touching people, like rolling on the floor, you know, swinging on the uh, poles, you know, uh, taking their book bags. They were just like doing all sorts of things. And I kind of look across and see this group of people like talking about this man, right? Just like whispers that weren't really whispers. They were like really loud. He's a bad parent. He's like, like, why would you let your kids do this? And finally, he lifts up his head with tears in his eyes and says, I just found out my wife passed. And I'll let you pause and sit with that. Because that is what I mean by the power of story. We don't know what has shaped someone. We don't know their experiences. We don't know their history. We don't know what it is that they're carrying in the moment, what they have had to journey through. We may not even know the history of the culture that they may emerge from. And when I say understanding story, I think story gives us access to be even more proximate to literally sit with the humanity of the people who are in front of us. It literally gives us the type of proximity where um, we can love neighbor and not just to use that Christian language, not to love neighbor as some cliche thing that we pull from scripture, but love the essence of what a person has had the journey through. Love the essence of what a person is fearing in the moment. Love the essence of all of the, the dualities of life that may be present in someone's uh, story, you know. Um, and it also gives us insights into how a person has been shaped or impacted or moved in some way. I don't think we can truly get proximate to people without understanding story. And for the Christians uh, who may be learning or listening, you know, I think Jesus himself models the idea of story best when he's uh, telling parables and he's asking people who he approaches and is proximate to about themselves that allows them to assert their sense of humanity in their cultural context. Um, and sometimes in, you know, America or the U S we believe stories about people that we assume we make up stories. We allow embedded ideas about people inform how we show up 
to either treat people or view people or judge people or criminalize people or any of the isms that we um, have been framed by. And what I'm kind of trying to get at is just lay the found, uh, uh, foundation in this book to say, if you truly want to be in solidarity with someone, if you truly want to be about racial justice or the work of conciliation, if you truly want to love your neighbor, you cannot do that with being distant from their story. Yeah, I love the kind of like a common thread that you wove, wove throughout there. And also, I think it's a common thread that um, is throughout all of your work um, is this idea of humanizing the other and how how yes. story um, humanizes people. <laughs> um, and that has been helpful for me in my own life in a, in a wide variety of ways. Just, you know, thinking about, um, for example, uh, so both of my brothers um, are in the LGBTQ community. Uh, my one brother is gay. My other brother is pansexual. And by being in relationship with them, that helped move my ideas and understandings, you know, my thoughts, theories about um, LGBTQ, you know, plus kind of questions um, into like an embodied experience and reality. It wasn't just this idea I had anymore, but rather it's a part of my everyday. It's a part of my experience. Um, and then on top of that, it opened me up to um, asking questions about uh, like trans folks, for example. Um, and I didn't, you know, I didn't fully, un I mean, I still don't fully understand, but I didn't understand. Um, but by being uh, in the kind of spaces with my brother or like just other spaces that I've been in, um, I've become friends with uh, trans folks. And then that, again, the proximity, the story, the humanizing um, shifts things. It, it, it changes things. It, it takes things out of just ideas for me and, and brings them into my embodied experience. Um, and I, I remember too, even just uh, kind of more so in line with the topic of your your book, my uh, buddy Keith um, is a pastor, uh, him and his wife, um, uh, pastor in like a predominantly white congregation in, in Ohio. Um, and Keith and his wife are both black. Um, and after I remember after the uh, murder of Ahmaud Arbery, Keith invited me um, onto a Zoom call uh, with Keith. And um, there was a panel of of probably six other gentlemen, six other gentlemen, uh, age ranging from like 15 or 16 up to like, I don't know, he could be my grandfather. And all that happened was story was shared and the people on the panel were the only people that could talk and everybody else was just there to hear the story and listen. Um, mm. And that... I've shared that story on this podcast many times, but I will never forget that experience. That shifted something in me, um, brought me into the story of um, things I didn't have have concept or idea about. Like in your in your book, you talk about uh, having to have the talk 
with your son. Mm. And that's something I've never yes. had to experience. Um, but that came up in that conversation, you know? And so like that, I don't know. It just, yeah, <laughs> the story is, is, is everything. Um, and it's been like life changing. So I appreciate that, that, uh, that aspect of your work. Yeah. You know, I, I try to, um, I try to, I try to put myself in the work as much as I am trying to drop things in that either people may not be aware of, or they may be aware of, but don't necessarily know how it impacts a person who is living this in real time. I'll never forget um, going over to my my grandmother's house. I was 10 years old, and it was the first time my grandfather had, like, a talk with me. Like, I still can remember, like, I, I feel chills in my body because I can, I can see the furniture and, like, feel the air and smell... Uh, the breakfast that my grandmother was cooking and like i remember my grandfather's hands he he passed away a couple of years ago but um i can still see see like the wrinkles in his hand and like out of nowhere he 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 leans over to me as we're about to eat and he says you know you know uh this world is going to be hard for you and you're going to be mistreated because of the color of your skin like that was the first time like I really had to wrestle as a 10 year old boy with the idea of a racialized construct, right? The the first time I encountered like race itself was when I heard my mom talking on the phone about the Rodney King beating that happened in 1991. And, you know, hearing her say things like they did what to him why do they treat us like that and realizing that it was something to the color of my skin but like sitting there across from my grandfather and him like telling me these things like I don't even know if my 10 year old brain fully understood that um but I, I started to realize that it had something to do with the way that we we you know were created and how we were in our black bodies and you know later i found out that this talk itself is sort of like a, a rite of passage for black children and basically you know black parents black grandparents the black villages kind of communicating to black children um that you know you will be seen as a threat and you have to learn how to um, live, right? Uh, to kind of mitigate the potential harm, right? And so like when black people have collective trauma, when we see like an Amara Arbery or a Breonna Taylor, like that shared trauma stems from the history, our history, collective history, but it also stems from like these very 
young encounters with these conversations that in many ways produces fear, right? Like, um, I remember the fear I felt when I was 10 hearing, hearing these things. And, you know, now fast forward, like I talk about in this book, now I'm in the driver's seat, right? And as much as I have gained education, you know, worked hard to like protect my children from those realities, there's nothing I can do to protect them because it just is a reality. And when my son sees the knee on the neck of George Floyd and sees tanks on the television at nine years old, he asks me why. And it's a conversation that is embarrassing as a black father, as a black parent, because you don't want to have to tell the truth about the reality of what could possibly happen to you as you continue to grow up and become a black man. And so the talk is, is still impacting me and informing me even to this day, but everybody has been given a talk, right? Everybody has a storyline, even if you're not black, if you're white, maybe that talk was directly, Maybe the talk was indirectly hearing um, other people uh, talk about other uh, races or groups of people. Maybe that talk was, you know, nonverbal, right? Because nonverbal communication is still communication. The way that you treat someone, the way that you uh, see saw other people in your family treat other people who came from a different social location. And so that that is so essential, man, because I don't I think sometimes we don't understand how um talking heads or news media clips or the banning of books in the state of Florida or the coded language all is communicating the talk and is influencing how we show up either to distance ourselves from or stand in solidarity with people who have been oppressed in this country. Yeah, man, that it's like the, the, that like brings into frame, like very vividly, just this, the kind of difference between like the, the implicit uh, versus like the explicit um, like forms of, of like racism <laughs> that are still present. Cause I very much, even as you were talking there are, I don't think I was ever explicitly taught um, racist ideas like my parents, um, like I, I grew up around a diverse group of people, but there very much still were um, implicit things taught or things that I look back on today now. Like um, I remember as you were talking, uh, asked, like wanting to go to the to the mall to get like something asked my grandmother if we could go and she said oh well no like um you know around this time it gets dark in the mall and i thought she was telling me that they turn the lights off <laughs> but that's not what she was implying um and so like things mm. like this um yeah that uh man um yeah that just uh kind of um 
come to mind. And then to that, um, all of that plays nicely. And you, you have a whole section in, in the book about bias. Um, and a lot of these, these biases too, are not necessarily just, um, explicit or taught. Um, they're demonstrated through actions like the people, I guess your parents have over for dinner or who they don't, <laughs> um, maybe these kind of things. Um, yeah, and it's just, I don't know. It's, it's such a complex, um, well, yeah, it's, it's a complicated conversation, but at the same time, um, it's not, um, I, I don't know. I, I'm not finding myself with, uh, with, with good or helpful words. Um, but I think, I think, uh, yeah, bro, and I, I hear that. And I, I want to ask you, what are you feeling in this moment? Because normally you, you are a uh, a man of many words. So how how is the conversation impacting you? Yeah, that's it's a good question. I think it it's hard to put into words because uh, I I'm good at at theorizing. Um, I'm good at reading and learning ideas and and trying to communicate complex ideas. Um, but when those ideas, like I was saying earlier, no longer come ideas, but rather um, are things I'm experiencing in the moment, it it becomes difficult, especially when it's not something, it's not an experience that I personally have had. And then it's like, oh shit, well, mm. what do I do now? Like, what what do I say? What don't I say? <laughs> um, mm. You know, and, and more so, I just, it, it, it gets me thinking back and just, you know, remembering um, my own experiences and, and upbringings or, uh, conversations I've had with, um, you know, like friends growing up. Um, yeah. So it's just, it hits me differently and it, it becomes emotional and then it just is no longer, um, easy just to converse about things as if they're just ideas. Um, it becomes very real, wow. very quick. Does that make sense? Because then I can, I could keep asking you about theories and ideas, but this, <laughs> but like you, yeah, you have and... a, a bit about moving from like head to heart or, or the embodiment of, of the yeah. ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I think that is the essence of everything that you just explained is the essence of why I wrote this. Um, because it's it's in that feeling that you draw closer to the story of another person that you're able to cultivate this this sense of solidarity where it's lamenting with others you know in a real not in a like a superficial way but like we're on zoom right now and i can feel the closeness of the conversation and how we are converging or having this intersectional moment from two different totally uh social locations social upbringings all of this but we're 
at this like critical moment where we are left to reflect with what do we do with this, right? How do we continue to cultivate these types of conversations, but also invite other people who haven't had this space to do this type of work? Um, you know, listening to others and learning from others and immersing yourself into the story of another, right? Right, where it kind of positions you to be empathetic or show compassion, right? And I think that creates this kind of like pathway for us to stand with others and use our voice to speak um, truth to power as in a form of, you know, truth telling, as Jamar Tisby says, is like the beginning of repair. Like we are able to repair or reorient the ways that we have been socially fashioned to believe things about this particular subject or, you know, man, I just think, um, I thank you for sharing the story even about your grandmother. And I don't even know how hard that was for you to share, but I think that is important because, you know, I think about the countless of other people who have been communicated to in that way, but they, it, it just like went over their heads and they weren't really able to sit with that talk that they were given. Yeah. Well, thank, I thank you for, for putting yourself out there in the way that um, you did, not only in the cover, the conversation, but uh, also within your book. Cause I mean, we I know we keep coming back to story, but you shared like countless stories uh, throughout your book, and every time I found myself getting angry <laughs> or upset, um, yeah. not only thinking about yourself in that situation, but also thinking about uh, you know some of my like really good friends um, and like placing them in those those kind of situations or um, make me. Cry on the damn podcast, Terrence. It's messed up. Um, but I remember even just talking to my friend Javaska, who uh, Jay, I've been friends with him since we met in high school when we worked in a grocery store together. And uh, Jay has has two um, two uh, boys, and um, he's in an inter uh, inter interracial relationship, which already causes issues um for some people and then like even as you're talking i haven't thought about this in a while but javaska told me about having to explain this kind of story to his two kids and like mm. they're young like they're jj and jojo are like seven or eight and like four maybe somewhere around there um mm. and so like it just it becomes again it it's it's taking that I like because you, you again you talk about proximity later in the book, but it it is kind of that proximity. Um, and then the you know these are real relationships in my life, and so they you know they carry you know understanding like leads to compassion. Um, and I think you, hmm. you say compassion then leads to the to um, solidarity, um, where we can then actually start talking about things like reconciliation. Um, yeah, it's just. I don't know. It, it gets emotional pretty quickly. 
and then even too, just kind of the idea um, seems to be coming to mind that you you talk about in the book um, about uh, sitting at like another person's table, basically, um, which I really liked that because you kind of um, you called something out that I didn't really notice before, where it's like, you know, uh, a lot of times people, uh, white people like myself have this tendency to say, oh, like we want diversity and inclusion. Um, come join us at our table. Uh, but then that still uh, ties into this, like kind of the inherent white supremacy because it's still like, oh, I own the table still. You're just now allowed to come sit at it. And you can say something, maybe I'll take it into consideration, maybe. Uh, but kind of flipping that on its head. And um, now I feel like I'm <laughs> trying to, enter into like, okay, let's, I want to go sit at Terrence's table now and see what Terrence has to say. Um, instead of just inviting everybody to what Josh has to say and think all the time. So that I, mm. I don't know. This kind of, this conversation kind of feels like bro. that to me. Yeah. That's deep, bro. Because it's <clears throat> what you just said is the start of repair because Sitting at another person's table or this idea of decentering yourself makes you vulnerable, but it also puts you in a place to learn more than you ever had. When you own the table, you control the script. I've been in part of these conversations. <laughs> you get to dictate what is said and what is not said. You get to uh, uh, police the tone. Right. Uh, you get to do what one pastor in Atlanta uh, said, uh, co-opt a word and uh, transform a, a word called white privilege into white blessing. <laughs> you get to, you know what I mean? And it's it's so it's. Repair is difficult. Repair is vulnerable. Repair takes work. Repair is messy. Repair takes standing with people and being proximate enough to feel the weight of what they experience on a day-to-day, second-by-second basis. Repair is about learning a new way of understanding, um, which creates a pathway to be even more proximate repair is about building friendships and knowing the names of your friends children and sitting with that on a podcast and feeling that emotion to be able to have the courage to continue to tell truth uh even to those who may look like you that's what repair is all about bro and I, that's what i appreciate about about you and what i've always appreciated about this podcast well, thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I don't know. I just, the um, I don't know. I think these kind of, co- I mean, conversations are, are difficult and, you know, I'm stumbling over my words um, more than I typically would. <laughs> uh, but I just can't get over 
um, past experience of just how deeply forming and meaningful conversations like this have been um, mm. for myself. And, and even to just to share one more story that's that's coming to mind. Um, that was just super interesting. I have a buddy named Mike and Mike used to be a patron at full tilt, the brewery that I used to work at until it got um, closed down. Um, unfortunately due to like COVID complications, things like this. And Mike, Mike's a really good friend. Um, he invited me over to his house for a bonfire the other day, uh, probably like a month ago. And it was myself and probably like seven other people. And I was the only white dude there. <laughs> and uh, um, it was funny because I like people started making fun of me a little bit. Like, how did you get invited kind of thing? Um, but then some. it was really interesting because something the conversation kind of shifted and it got really deep and real really quickly. Um, but then Mike and Mike's friends, people, I had met some of them before, uh, but like three of them I had never met before invited me into the conversations still, um, without knowing mm. who I was. And like, that was like another like formative kind of just like, holy shit. You know, like, you don't know what you don't know. Um, right. Until you know it. And so like, I'm, you know, in the... <laughs> this conversation made me think about that. And I haven't, I haven't thought about it in that way yet, but like, I'm grateful for like someone like Mike <laughs> to invite me into this conversation. Uh, or even if it was unintentional, um, but I, Mike is a smart dude. I don't think Mike does things unintentionally, even though he might like to pretend that right. maybe sometimes he does. <laughs> and then, you know, wow. What type of relationship did you have with Mike for Mike to feel safe enough to invite you to the table? You know, um, I think that is, you know, one of the essence of what I'm getting at is that when you stand with people, you build relationships with people, you learn from people, you learn with people. Um, that type of trust and safety is established where deeper and more meaningful conversations can take place where both persons are formed, you know, and impacted. And I think, you know, even in hearing that story, bro, I would invite you to a cookout out too, you know? And that's 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 all everything I love. Yep. I would definitely come through. <laughs> I've, <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't been to Atlanta before. Uh I've driven driven through it once uh when we were fleeing a hurricane in Florida. <laughs> that's not good, you know. It's not a good uh yeah, wasn't a good time. But um I hmm I'm before we kind of like started this, uh, like recording the conversation, you had asked me about, um, like, cause I was telling you about like how process thinking has been meaningful to me, uh, recently. Um, and one way that I think that comes to mind that ties into this conversation, I think nicely, uh, for why process relational thinking is helpful is, um, basically, uh, 
within process, like um, the one of the ideas is that you can't understand the whole without understanding the individuals. Um, and also you can't understand an individual without understanding the whole. So it's, it's deeply relational. And so hmm. once, once that kind of recognition comes into play, I think it, it can tie into something that I think is interesting. And, and you, you talk about in the book, um, cause oftentimes you hear in, in Christian circles, specifically white Christian circles, uh, when something like black lives matter is said, they're like, Oh, well, like all lives matter. Jesus died for everybody kind of thing. And what's interesting is from within a process relational framework, you very quickly realize that if people are saying all lives matter, but each of those individual lives aren't being taken care of, then it's bullshit. All lives can't matter until each individual life matters. Or as like my mm-hmm. friend Roberto um, Shea Espinoza, uh, as he, he uses this language of um, what bodies count. And uh, he likes to talk about imagining a better world where every body counts. Um, mm. But like everybody can't count until each ever, each individual body does. And maybe we mm. can imagine a better world where one day somebody could say something like all lives matter. And that is true based off lived experience. Um, but until that day, like. We got some work to Until do. Until that day, <laughs> a lot of work to do, brother. Lots yeah. of work. Yeah. Man, I, man, I, mm. I don't know. Um, yeah, pro- I feel like process gives me a helpful way of looking at that because then I, yeah, it, I, I don't know. Anyway, that's me trying to intellectualize things because I move away from emotion because i'm an enneagram type seven and that's what i do <laughs> okay. Okay. i'm an eight yeah yeah i'm a seven wing yeah. eight <laughs> okay um, okay yeah yeah but i don't know man terrence this thank you so much um for this conversation and for your work um and the continued work that you do i i love following you on social media because I don't know. Social media is one of those places that can be so like volatile. Um, but I don't yeah. know. Fo- following your 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 feed always um, brings me like hope and encouragement and joy, even with the kind of difficult conversations um, you challenge people to. So please keep doing what you're doing. I appreciate I- that, man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, thank, thank you, man. Um, I appreciate you. I appreciate your wisdom, this podcast, and all of the meaningful conversations that will continue to educate and inform people, hopefully to push people Mm -hmm. in in proximate relationships with all of their neighbors, because every body (laughs) counts, right? Yes. Yeah. Amen. (laughs) Um, I was going to ask you, though, man. Yeah, go for it. I don't know if anybody listens to this maybe two people or so i would love to gift two people with all three books oh sure um and we can do that uh That'd just be let awesome. me know how you want to give them away we can mail them directly to them but i appreciate you this is uh our third conversation it's in the <laughs> archives brother 
in the archives. It's on the record down in history. Yeah. That's another cool thing yeah. about about process is the past is now objectively immortal. So this conversation exists forever perfectly within the divine nature and it's a beautiful thing. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> oh, oh, there we go. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Uh yeah, we'll we'll make that that happen and uh also I'll be sure to uh, link your work um, in the show notes. I'll also link Love Beyond Walls. Um, it's such an awesome organization uh, that people should should check out. And then one day we're going to have to figure out a time for Love Beyond Walls to come hang out in Baltimore. And oh, for sure. I'll be there. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I would love that. Cool. Yeah, we, we got to make that happen for real. Yeah, I'm I'm down. And uh, the the brewery that I'm I'm at now uh, they're really big on community involvement and engagement, and uh, we have a, a space that that could host something like that. So we could we could totally make it happen if breweries are acceptable meeting places. <laughs> oh, sure, yeah, yeah, most definitely, yeah, yeah. Sick, sweet man. Well, well, thank you again uh, for for everything, and listeners, thanks for for hanging out uh today thanks for putting up with my uh my ramblings as uh parents uh challenged me and brought me into a, a place of, of vulnerability so thanks for hanging out guys and uh as always go in peace <laughs>